just sorry that we have to do it through Zoom because uh, I miss, I really miss the lovely uh, old library at Old Souls. Um, so I'm going to uh, start uh, sharing my presentation uh, so we can remember this, this lovely place. And um, well, the, the, the thing I'm going to talk about you today is uh, something I've been um, working uh, for, uh, for quite a, a few months and years uh, because my current research is about human rights standards as an alleged source of international law. Um, it is often seen in the international human rights systems operators uh, discourse, as well as the national legal operators discourse, the use of the terms human rights standards or international human rights standards almost as a synonym for human rights or the obligation that states have in this area. I, I need to make here an important clarification. My dissertation is in Spanish. So the concept I am working on is Estándares Internacionales de Derechos Humanos, which is often translated as international human rights standards, but I'm not sure this is quite correct. This is the way in which the, um, the official translations of the Inter-American System on Human Rights translate this, uh, this phrase, this expression. Um, but at least you should be advised that estándares are not what usually lawyers call standards in the Anglo-speaking uh, world. Um, so if uh, you all uh, think of the same thing when you say standards, um, which I, I'm not so not sure of that. So anyway, these uh, human rights standards are usually considered not to refer solely to the normative expression of human rights in treaties, custom, or general principles of law. On the contrary, such expression is given a use that also includes non-binding instruments whose normative legal content is doubtful or at least its bindingness is not expressly declared or recognized by any international rule. So for example, um, declarations, uh, compacts, resolutions of international organizations, collections of good practices, and also judicial decisions, views and general comments of treaty bodies, etc., all uh, are called uh, human rights standards or human rights standards are uh, contained in all of these uh, different examples. So the problem is that there is no clear definition of, of human rights standards. And not only that, but also it seems that few have wondered so far what they really are. But uh, however, I think that uh, many times ingeniously or um, and some other times boldly, they are invoked as a rule of conduct, as a source of obligations for states and other non-state subjects, even when its contents has clearly not been determined by the traditional sources of international law or based on the traditional sources of international law. Uh, so this, this term human rights standards um, 
or the equivalent in the region of, of the Americas, inter-American standards, is not unambiguous, um, and its content is uncertain. But um, <clears throat> the problem is not only one of the polysemy of language, but it is possible that this term is used as a performative utterance, pursuing specific ideologic intentionality with the meaning that is attributed to it. So uh, put in, in simple words, uh, it is used for a progressive case for human rights. So to, to push forward, to, to, to create a new human rights obligations. And I think this is the case in the inter-American system and we will see uh, why in, in, in my presentation. So this is the outline of what I'm planning to, to say we have talked about what are international human rights standards? And I, I uh, will talk a little bit more about this. And then how does the, um, both the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and the Inter-American Court on Human Rights set standards? And after that, I'm going to um, give an example of one Inter-American standard, how it is created and developed. And then finally, I'm going to to ask the question if this is international lawmaking, what the inter-American bodies are doing when setting standards, if they are creating new law, new international law, and why this is problematic. Um, so let's uh, continue with this. Um, there's a definition <clears throat> by Victor Conde uh, when he uh, explains what is uh, the process of standard setting. And he says that it is the process of negotiating and adopting specific norms of conduct on specific subjects, for example, torture, refugees, women, women's rights, etc. He says that usually the standard setting process starts with a proposal made by one or more states and possibly NGOs to an international or an intergovernmental organization such as the UN for adoption of a resolution calling for the establishment of human rights standards in a given area. After this uh, resolution is adopted, it is followed by negotiation and adoption of a declaration setting forth the human rights principles agreed upon in a non-binding international instrument. And finally, this process is supposed to lead to the negotiation, adoption, and ratification of a binding international legal instrument, such as a convention or a covenant or, or treaty. That sets forth the standards in positive legal terms. <clears throat> but uh, this is uh, what is usually uh, understood for uh, human rights standards at, let's say, uh, an international or universal level. But at, at the um, the inter-American system um, in, in, in recent years, especially, they have um, started to use this, this phrase to refer to um, other, other realities, not only this process of negotiation by states of, of um, negotiating and proposing and setting new standards, but they have um, start talking about inter-American standards or international human rights standards 
as a collection of um, or compendia of the jurisprudence of the court and the commission. Um, I'm going to, to, to talk a little bit more uh, about this uh, in just in a while. Um, when I ex explain how the, um, the Inter-American Commission, especially, uh, sets standards. So, you know, there are two bodies in the Inter-American system, the, the commission and the court. And how does the commission set standards? They, they, they usually do this through their case law or jurisprudence. Um, there's an issue with, with this word. I, I, I understand that in, in especially in, in British English, you call jurisprudence to the philosophy of law. I'm, I'm talking about the, the case law or the, all the things that the commission had said through their reports in cases uh, or through their um, precautionary measures. But um, <clears throat> also the commission issues a type of reports that are called thematic reports. Uh, which they, uh, as I said, are, uh, they collect their, many of the decisions of, the, of, of themselves, of the commission, also decisions by the, by the, the court, and a myriad of other sources. They, they usually refer there to pronunciations by uh, UN treaty bodies, or decisions by the European Court of Human Rights, and even maybe um, opinions by NGOs or, or doctrine generally. So when they, they issue these reports, they are, they are very much doing so. Um, they are issuing this two or three of this a year, maybe more. You can see there uh, a picture of the, of the website of the commission. You would see, uh, compendium on the labor and trade union rights, inter-American standards, or, uh, you know, standards on the rights of persons of deprived of liberty and whatever, business and human rights, inter-American standards. And the, late, the latest um, is the one I called the standards about standards because it's the compendium on, on the obligation of states to adapt their domestic legislations to the inter-American standards of human rights. So as I said, there's no clear definition, or maybe each of these uh, reports would have a different uh, notion of what a standard is. I'm going. I'm. I'm reading you this one here because uh, I found it in a footnote in one of these reports that says, for the purposes of this report, the concept of legal standards is defined as a set of judicial decisions, thematic and country reports, and other recommendations adopted by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. The term legal standards also refers to the regional human rights treaties that govern the system, such as the American Convention and the Convention of Belén de Pará. The concept also refers to the judgments and advisory opinions issued by the American Inter-American Court of Human Rights. So as you can see, it's a big, um, big group of things which contains uh, what would, we would naturally think of standards, which are the, the rules contained in the treaties, the Inter-American 
convention, the American Convention and, the, and other conventions. But also uh, these uh, standards would be defined as the set of judicial decisions, reports, other recommendations, judgments, advisory opinions by the court, etc. So it's um, it's a big, big uh, collection of, of, of things. Um, this is uh, how the Inter-American Commission uh, develops what they now call Inter-American Standards. Just a, a little word and before I get into the court, uh, you should be advised uh, of the way in which the Inter-American Commission works. It's you know, the commission is it's, uh, formed by seven members, seven commissioners, which are not full-time in their job, but they have the help of the general, of the executive secretariat of the commission, which is a group of, of, of specialized lawyers, which work full-time. But they uh, also um, usually work with uh, interns, unpaid interns, or um, consultants. And maybe, uh, maybe these thematic reports, many of them are written by uh, consultants, uh, someone that is uh, retained for the elaboration of, of these reports, which of course they are, after that they are approved by the, by the full commission, all, all seven members have to vote and, and approve this, these reports. But this is how I think, uh, I think this is one of the reasons why these reports are uh, many uh, are very different sometimes, and maybe the the concept of standards that each of these reports uh, handle are different is because they're written by different people, uh, which are not always working uh, full time. So they they don't even share the you know the the methods of work of the of the body. Uh, so you would find. These different thematic reports, some of them would um, use uh, more of the, I don't know, of the judgments and advisory opinions of the, of the court, and some others would uh, delve more in other type of, of, of sources uh, from outside of the internal system, etc. Just move forward to how does the Inter-American Court and Human Rights set standards, uh, and I just going to um, talk a little bit about the conventionality control that maybe you are familiar with this uh, concept. I, I have no, no time to, to explain it uh, very deep, but um, it is important to, to, to understand how this works because it is very, uh, it's very um, fundamental in the creation of the standards by the court. So conventionality control. In the image of constitutionality control, that is to say the judicial review by uh, the court of the validity of, uh, say, a legislative act. Um, but uh, it is a review that is not only done by the Inter-American Court, but they have, they have said uh, that there's an international obligation on public authorities, judges and all public authorities in all state parties to the American Convention to interpret any legal norm 
that is from the constitutions to a law, a decree, or a court judgment, to interpret that domestic legal norm in a manner compatible with the convention as interpreted by the Inter-American Court. So not only the text of the convention, but also the interpretations uh, of the convention by the Inter-American Court. Uh, so in this way, the court sought to transform domestic judges and any public authority into allies, <clears throat> empowering them to comply with the interpretation of the American Convention on Human Rights and even the entire Inter-American Human Rights Corpus Juris. So um, this, this Corpus Juris thing, just let me give you a little word on, on this. <clears throat> it's also a concept that was developed by the, by the <clears throat> case law of the Inter-American Court um, when they say in one of the advisory opinions back in 1999, they said, the Corpus Juris of International Human Rights Law comprises a set of international instruments of varied content and juridical effects, treaties, conventions, resolutions, and declarations. Its dynamic evolution has had a positive impact on international law in affirming and building up the latter's faculty for regulating relations between states and human beings within their respective jurisdictions. This court, therefore, must adopt the proper approach to consider this, this question in the context of the evolution of the fundamental rights of human person in contemporary international law. So this, this concept that developed by the, by the court um, it starts in, in, this, in this first uh, formulation, uh, saying that when they talk about corpus juris, they talk about a set of international instruments, Okay, and they they recognize that are of varied content and juridical effects. So they they at the beginning they they didn't say everything is the same treaties, conventions, and resolutions and declarations. But um, this was 1999. They have been repeating this concept of corpus juris in, in very different sets of cases about indigenous peoples, about children's rights, whatever you 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 name it. And now they are only talking about the corpus juris, but without this um, nuance of the varied uh, juridical effects. So now I think the court gives the same juridical effects to everything that is contained in this corpus juris. So combine this corpus juris concept with the conventionality control. And what you'll have is that the court is saying that everything that is part of the corpus juris is binding on every, uh, on every state of the internal system because everyone is bound and has this obligation to um, interpret any of their domestic uh, law in a manner compatible with this corpus juris, in a manner uh, that is uh, according to the jurisprudence of the Inter-American Court. This is, uh, as you can see, uh, uh, creation and uh, an amplification of the, of the Inter-American law, not limiting that only to the treaties or the, say, treaties, custom and principles, general principles, but to everything that the court has, say, has said through its jurisprudence.
Um, so um, I, I, I would finally say about this that the impact of conventionality control within domestic legal orders, as well as in the India in the academic world, uh, was and remains very strong, but attitudes toward the, the launch of this, of this doctrine uh, range from full acceptance to reservations through to strong opposition. So this, this is still, still being discussed uh, in, the, in the internal consistent, okay? Uh, although the court insists that uh, conventionality control is, is something that is, uh, well, it was created by them and something that should be followed. Um, let's move forward to the, the next piece of my presentation. I'm going to um, uh, to use uh, some minutes here to try to explain um, in detail one standard. I, I think this uh, a good way of understanding all the all the implications of this uh, doctrine of the intra-American standard uh, standards has is by uh, analyzing, uh, let's say, the anatomy of, uh, of one uh, specific standard. So I've chosen um, one example, uh, the case of the delegation of the duty to consult indigenous peoples. Um, so, um, sorry. Uh, what you see in this image here is uh, one of the thematic reports by the Commission. It's not very clear, but um, one of the thematic reports of the Commission um, <clears throat> from 2009 that is called the Indigenous and Tribal People's Rights over their Ancestral Lands and Natural Resources. Um, the, um, the standard I'm going to, to talk to you about now is um, the one I put in red letters there, and it's, uh, it's formulated like this. Uh, carrying out consultation procedures is a responsibility of the state that cannot be delegated to other parties, such as the company seeking the concession or investment contract. So <clears throat> I picked this example related to uh, the matter of indigenous people's rights and specifically uh, free prior informed uh, consent or consultations rights more generally, because in this area, it's in this area where the inter-American system bodies have developed and or set a huge number of standards. And it's, it's, it's famous for this. Um, even other regional uh, systems like the African system of human rights have quoted uh, the inter-American system for indigenous people's rights and standards. So, um, so let's go a little bit on how this specific standard, what I call the, the prohibition of the delegation of the duty of the state duty to consult have been uh, developed by the system. So to begin with, neither the commission nor the court have traditionally favored direct responsibilities for corporations in these cases. Uh, appearing essentially to prohibit the delegation of consultations to private entities. In fact, the commission expressly rejected this possibility in, in their 2009 thematic report. They said there, 
Carrying out consultation procedures is a responsibility of the state and not of other parties, such as the company seeking a concession or investment contract. In many countries that form part of the inter American system, the state responsibility to conduct prior consultation has been transferred to private parties, generating a de facto privatization of the state's responsibility. The resulting negotiation processes with local communities then often fail to take into consideration a human rights framework because corporate actors are, as a matter of definition, profit-seeking entities that are therefore not impartial. Consultation with indigenous peoples is a duty of states which must be complied with by the competent public authorities." Unquote. So for saying this, the commission was based not on inter-American norms, uh, actually not the American Convention on Human Rights says nothing about indigenous people's rights. There's no instrument in the inter-American system uh, about indigenous rights. Um, so it was based on language from the United Nations Rapporteur on Indigenous Peoples. The reference uh, was to the UN Special Rapporteur on Indigenous Peoples uh, report of 2009, James Anaya, which you're seeing him in the, the picture, in which James Anaya stated, in accordance with well-grounded principles of international law, the duty of the state to protect the human rights of indigenous peoples, including its duty to consult with indigenous peoples concerned before carrying out activities that affect them, is not one that can be avoided through delegation to a private company or other entity. And although Anaya, James Anaya expressed similar concerns in his 2011 annual report, in an addendum he made uh, to that report of 2011, he made reference to a country in which he observed that consultations had been delegated de facto to enterprises responsible for the execution of certain projects. And the matter of his concern there was not the delegation itself, but the fact that it was done without due supervision of the state. So this latter stance accords with the position sustained by the committee of experts on the application of conventions and recommendations of the ILO, the committee that interprets ILO conventions. And this committee, when interpreting ILO convention 169, the one on indigenous people's rights, they have accepted that, uh, that companies in charge of exploration and exploitations of oil in, in indigenous lands could carry out consultations. Um, so we can see that um, the, um, the UN rapporteur is uh, little by little moving towards this possibility. The committee of the RLO accepts it, accepts it, but the position of the Inter-American Commission um, was adopted by the Inter-American Court three years later. Okay, so the, this doctrine of a general prohibition against the transfer of responsibility with respect to the duty to consult was adopted by the court in the Sarayaku case um, of 2012. 
in the Sarajevo versus Ecuador, the court said there, it should be emphasized that the obligation to consult is the responsibility of the state. Therefore, the planning and executing of the consultation process is not an obligation that can be avoided by delegating it to a private company or to third parties, much less delegating it to the very company that is interested in exploiting the resources in a territory of the community that must be consulted. So uh, nevertheless, in this case, the court adopted the, the internal com commission position with nuances for it, it left the door open for a possible delegation. Um, because they, they consider in this case, a, an hypothetical case in which such a delegation process could be delegated to private third parties with some uh, conditions they, they mentioned there. In any case, uh, what is important is to note uh, at this point that in James Anaya's final report as UN Rapporteur, um, he um, changed, shifted his position on the delegation. This was his report in 2013, and he said, the special rapporteur has observed that in many instances, companies negotiate directly with indigenous peoples about proposed extractive activities that may affect them, with states in effect delegating to companies the execution of the state's duty to consult with indigenous peoples prior to authorizing the extractive activities. By virtue of the right to self-determination, indigenous peoples are free to enter into negotiations directly with companies if they so wish. Indeed, direct negotiations between companies and indigenous peoples may be the most efficient and desirable way of arriving at agreed upon arrangements for extraction of natural resources within the indigenous territories that are fully respectful of indigenous people's rights. And they may provide indigenous people's opportunities to pursue their own development priorities. Unfortunately, despite the fact that this path seemed tentatively taken by the court, in very recent cases, we can still find references and quotes of Anaya's 2009 report despite his position changed in 2013. So the, uh, and, and even if we look to the reports of the successor of Anayas as UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, Victoria Tauli Corpus, they have nothing that may suggest that the possibility of delegation of the duty to consult is forbidden. However, it is unclear why both the Inter-American Commission and the Inter-American Court still quote in this regard the abandoned position. Um, so I don't know if um, someone can uh, relate uh, to this, but um, you can imagine this scene. Uh, a father and a three-year-old girl. You know, the father say, it's time to brush your teeth. Why? because we brush our teeth at bedtime. Why? Because we want to have healthy teeth. Why? So we can chew. Why? And before your preschooler can throw you another why, you shut the line of questioning down saying, because I say so. 
So if we ask the Inter-American court, why aren't companies allowed to consult indigenous peoples? The first answer will probably be because corporate actors are profit-seeking entities that are therefore not impartial. Why? Because the commission said so. Why? Because the UN Rapporteur on Indigenous People said so. But if he changed his mind, why we stick? Why we still stick to it? Because I say so. Okay. So um, this is how I imagine the, the the process of of the explanation and foundation of some of the decisions. Of course, not all of them, but how. Um, Many of inter-American standards are uh, created and based. They, they just quote different uh, sources, um, but with no uh, really binding nature. So it uh, finally, the only reason, uh, the only raison d'etre of those um, decisions is the, the will of the court or the Inter-American Commission. So this is why I compare this um, with uh, this, I compare this activity to international lawmaking in the case of this, um, of these two bodies. Okay, so um, maybe you can, uh, you can think of this, um, I don't know if you, um, Remember uh, the um, Drew Curry uh, show. I'm sorry, I just here. Um, the, remember this show on TV where uh, Drew Curry was saying that the show was called. Um, uh, the, the show where he said, um, "Welcome to the show where everything is made up and points don't matter." Maybe you can recall that that uh, famous show. Um, there was so there's a meme about the Inter-American uh, Human Rights Standards, where people would say, uh, "Welcome to the Inter-American Standard, where everything is made up and sources don't matter." Okay, so um, of course this is uh, an exaggeration, uh, but um, it is starting to make some uh, states at the inter-American system um, mad about this because they think that the inter-American um, bodies are uh, creating new law. Uh, so the, the phenomena I have described uh, here leads to, to the creation of human rights, not by virtue of the sources of international law, but by, that, but by other means. And as described by uh, Jean Dapremont, um, mainstream international legal discourses articulate themselves around a distinction between bindingness and interpretative effects. And correlatively with this, between the doctrine of the sources and the doctrine of interpretation. So uh, as I see it, the tendency to use the term human rights standards and apply them as if they were an essay source of international law, a source on its own, blurs the lines between hard and soft law. And it's probably the, the consequence of the blurring of the lines between sources and interpretation in the practice of the inter-American 
Commission and the Inter-American uh, uh, Court. So the question is, is, is this a problem? I, I think it is. Because if the reality described by the term human rights standards or inter-American human rights standards, if this reality is a source of international law, then states and other obliged subjects should be able to uh, know with certainty what their obligations are in order to fulfill them and not incur in, in international responsibility. But if the content of these standards or its bindingness is not clear, they cannot know how to abide by the law. And this, uh, I assure you, this alienates states because they, they're starting to think that uh, human rights standards are like Trojan horses. They bring uh, things inside that they're not uh, ready to deal with or they have not consent to, to be obliged by, by those. So states uh, are, are pretty sure what they, um, or they should be at least, what they um, assume as an obligation when they uh, negotiate and ratify a, a treaty, but they don't know what contents are in this uh, big compendia, these uh, thematic uh, reports that contain a lot of different things based on language of different um, different places or based on, for example, even treaties that they are not part to and, and well, etc. So um, just a final um, words because I'm approaching the, the, the time limit. Um, that is what I call the Barbosa paradox. Uh, you may I recall this uh, movie, The Pirates of the Caribbean. I'm just going to show you a little, little piece of... of... Okay, so um, what I call the Barbosa paradox is, is containing this uh, discussion. Um, that is the, the problem that um, maybe to, to try to support this position I'm, I'm talking in, in in, in this presentation by saying that uh, human rights standards are not actual rules, but they are something that states should, um, of course, uh, take into consideration, but they are not bound by those. The, um, the problem here is, and that's what I call it uh, a paradox, the Barbosa paradox, is that it sounds like the argument that a pirate would would give you okay so states that will say well i'm not bound by what the commission says or by by what the courts had said in a case that is not uh that i'm not a party etc is it, it reminds us of this argument that the code is more what you'd call guidelines than actual rules well uh, i know this sounds uh uh it sounds um like supporting pirate states, but um, but the the problem if if we uh, don't differentiate, um, if we don't don't really differentiate on on what are actual rules and you know actual obligations contained in in sources of international law, and um, and in and in the 
rest of standards is it's a real problem and and we may lose uh, a lot of states that are already complaining about this uh, proliferation and, and creation of what they call uh, human rights overreach. So I have a, a, a proposal that is um, distinguishing, uh, to make a distinction between human rights and human rights standards as two, set, two different sets of norms, okay? So, um, and each of these would be uh, actually the, the products of two different activities. Lawmaking, when uh, we create new human rights by the, in the way in which international law is created. And then standard setting, that of course is a very useful, uh, a useful activity and we still need the court and the commission to continue producing uh, standards and because they are the ways in which um, states are guided on how to abide by their obligations, but they're, they're not supposed to be bound by each of these ways in which the commission or the court would think this obligation should be, um, should be done. And the example, I'm coming back to the example of the delegation of the court. Why should states uh, not delegate uh, the obligation to consult in a corporation if they wish to do that in, to do it in that way through their domestic law, just because the commission of the court have said they cannot do so if that is not based in any of the actual human rights obligations contained in the treaties that are applicable to to the situation. Okay, so uh, that's why I, I believe it's important to make this distinction between what are the actual human rights obligations and the rest of, of human rights standards. And I will end here with the presentation and will be open to, to your questions.